we came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and, and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water? Jesus said to her, go go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar And went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. 
Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is life to us. And we pray, Father, that you would teach us this morning and cause your spirit to minister in our hearts in such a way to generate our desire and our hunger for you, deepen our love, give us uh, a thirst like this woman for the right things and satisfy us in our longings and give us your work to do. Give us hearts that seek to serve your purposes while we are in this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, I don't know if you have ever had a surprise. Um, I'm thinking of a good surprise. Uh, have you ever been in that position and that think of that feeling that comes over you when it is something very pleasant and you're taken aback and you, you just realize this is really good. Something wonderful is at work here. Let me just tell you a quick story. Several years ago, uh, a number of you know that we adopted uh, three children from Russia uh, two of them initially, and uh, when we were in Russia for the very first time, it was for the purpose of adop- adopting these two children. Well, back up a number of years, I graduated from high school in 1981. I always hate to throw out numbers because then you're sitting there calculating how old I am. So uh, 1981, I graduated. It was the height of the Cold War, and I was sitting there in government class next to a fellow who had a recent copy of the U.S. News and World Report, and on the front cover, it was comparing the armaments of the United States and that of the Soviet Union. And uh, I don't know who was ahead at the time, but it was quite a scary proposition when you thought about it. There's enough uh, ammunition here, enough, uh, you know, missiles and so forth that we could just, you know, blow up the whole world if we wanted to. And uh, in those days, that was uh, indeed in the forefront of people's mind when they woke up. In 1963, Cuban Missile Crisis and all of those things just heightened the, uh, the issue. So the Cold War really loomed big. It was probably uh, far larger than ISIS looms big in people's minds today. And uh, so, you know, t- to be in Russia, 
to adopt two children. It, it just blew my mind. You know, not only are we going to be in Russia, we're actually going to bring two Russian kids home. And uh, we were there. There was another American couple that was along. They were adopting a single child. And while we were uh, on our way to court to declare our intent to adopt these two children, or might have even been, I think it was just the, the second appearance in court where we were actually going to receive permission to take those children home, and all that was going to happen in one day. You know, we're out the orphanage, we're into a taxi, we're into a train, and then two days later we're on a plane from Moscow to Chicago coming home. It's going to happen just like that. Boom, 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 boom. We didn't have any other children at that point. Those were our first two children. And so uh, you can imagine all of these things, you know. We don't have any children. We're going to have two, not just one. And uh, we're, we're in Russia, and we're taking a piece of Russia home with us. Uh, this just, my, uh, you know, it didn't compute. It was just like everything was raging in my head. And so I, I turned to the other fellow, the other couple that was there, and I said, can you believe this? And I said, this is just absolutely amazing. You know, we're here in Russia. And I said, doesn't it just blow you away? said it just kind of like that. And he says, uh, yeah, but only half as much as you because <laughs> they were adopting one. But, uh, you know, it's just that feeling like, wow, this is unbelievable and how exciting. And we're going to have these two young children. So we get them. We go through this process. You know, we, we actually get them on the train. The translator says to us, um, okay, I'm going to lock you in here. As soon as I leave, you lock the door. And you did not open this door. We're on a sleeper car, Right. Don't open this door for anybody until I'm here tomorrow morning. You know, that sends a little bit of a fear in you. you know? But anyway, we, we, we then lock our door, and we turn around, and there are these two little kids, one and a half and two and a half, and they're sitting on the, the bed in this, this bunk in the sleeper car, and they're looking up at us with uh, eyes wide open, and we're looking down at them with eyes wide open. I'm not sure who was more surprised or more shocked in that moment, but... Uh, it was an awesome feeling, and if you can think of that kind of a surprise, you're, you're just moving down the path to the surprise that hit this place at the well in Samaria on that day. An awesome revelation is about to incur. And so Jesus, he is moving from Judea up to Samaria. You can read about that earlier. He had done something that was quite popular. He turned over the tables in the temple. You might remember that. And uh, all the, the religious leaders were, were quite pleased about that. No, actually, they weren't. Uh, but um, it really began to uh, differentiate the crowd. Who was going to follow Jesus? Uh, who is it that is going to respond to him? Now, when you think of him, just back up in John to chapter 1, uh, it, it says such things like, in the beginning was the Word. Now, the Word there is code language for Jesus because later, verse 14, says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, glory as of the, the one and only. He's the begotten of God, full of grace and truth. Okay? So this, I'm just kind of uh, leading us down the runway before we take off here. And this is the amazing thing. This one who is coming, who is the Savior of the world, he is from the Father, he is one with the Father, and he is there to reveal the Father in his grace, in his truth, and all of his glory is going to be unleashed in front of this woman. Okay? So uh, it makes my illustration pale in comparison, right? Uh, So... But the crowd is being differentiated. Some are beginning to believe. 
Others are outright rejecting. They see Jesus as a threat to their power, their position, their life, what they cling to. And uh, then there are others that are kind of along the range of those two spectrums. And so we learn at the end of chapter 2 that when Jesus was in Jerusalem, chapter 2, verse 23, at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, uh, this seems a little bit uh, difficult to digest, doesn't it? Uh, Here these people are believing, and yet Jesus is not entrusting himself to them. We have to read the rest of John's gospel. By chapter 6, it starts to become clear that those who are believing here are believing for the signs he is doing. So he turns water into wine, chapter 2. That's pretty impressive. You've got to believe in somebody who has that kind of power, right? Uh, we uh, take some great basketball star like Michael Jordan. We have to speak about the past, right? So about Michael Jordan, you know, and you believe in the Chicago Bulls, Michael Jordan's on their team, right? He, he stirs your interest. So uh, he does incredible things. You know, even when he's sick, he's scoring that, that fadeaway jumper from the three-point line that takes him out of bounds, and the thing goes swish right through the basket. And you're like, wow, this is a guy you can believe in, right? Uh, but then you, let's say you learn more about Michael Jordan, <laughs> and you start to say, well, you know, maybe I would need to rethink that. Okay. Well, that's what's kind of going on here in the movement of the book of John with these crowds. They believe in these signs. They're wowed by these signs, but we don't know until later which ones of them are going to see those miraculous signs and come out at the end of the day saying, yes, the cross is one to be the greatest of all those signs because he's going to lay his life down. He's going to rise again. I believe in that kind of a Messiah, right? So uh, we're along this, this path, this trail through the book of John. We don't know who is believing what. But it's interesting here that Jesus doesn't entrust himself, and instead this actually is what leads him to have the conversation with Nicodemus in the night. What, you don't know that you must be born again? How can you study the Old Testament and not know that your heart of stone needs to be changed into a heart of flesh? And that's only a work of God's spirit that he can do within you. How is it that you can be a rabbi of the Old Testament and not know that? But he's going to have a full-out conversation with Nicodemus. But then, not only him, he leaves Jerusalem and Judea, and the text tells us here, when he learned the Pharisees, when they had heard Jesus was making and baptizing, perhaps this is becoming a distraction, John 4, 1 and 2. So he leaves Judea, he departs for Galilee, In verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. Bible uh, scholars, they they debate over, you know, this this verb here, he must. Okay, it's it's a word of necessity. He had to. He must pass through Samaria. Well, you could think of that geographically in one sense because to get to Galilee... Uh, from Judea, you had to go right, right smack dab in the middle was this region of Samaria. So you had to go through, right? So he had to go through Samaria. It could just be, well, that's the way it goes, right? Or you could take this as uh, there is some divine intentionality at work here. I tend to prefer this, though the writer is not um, explicit about it. 
I think he is putting this here because of what follows and because of who Jesus is. He's not just the Savior for the Jewish person. He is the Savior for the Jewish person, but he is the Savior for the world. And so he must pass through Samaria. This is the first time that the gospel begins to go beyond those uh, politically correct borders of Israel. And it reaches out. Now, the Samaritans, you must understand, goes back to 2 Kings chapter 17. Toward the end of the chapter, you can look it up later. But when the king of Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, his policy was to mix foreigners into the population and to take a number of the population out in captivity to Assyria. So you had a blended people. The thought was that uh, they will lose their local allegiances, they will lose their political alliances if they intermarry. If they... So to the Jewish person in that southern kingdom of Jerusalem continued on for a number of years. To the Jewish person, these were like half-breeds. Now, I don't know if you're a dog lover and maybe you're a purist and you watch the, uh, the, uh, all of the dog shows and you know, you're really into the breeds and all this. We happen to have a, a purebred. Don't hold that against us if you have a mixed breed. Okay? But some people get really quite snobbish about this, don't they? You know, they're, they're into it and they'll let you know everything about their dog and so forth. So they're the, the thoroughbreds, right? Now, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's the attitude that, that's conveyed. All right, well, it's that same sort of thing. The, the, uh, the religious people down in Jerusalem, they looked at Samaria. In fact, a religious leader, he would not be caught going through Samaria. In fact, he'd take all the time and trouble to cross over the river, Jordan, and to go through a very pagan land, by the way, uh, to then re-enter going across the river Jordan into Galilee. So he went around. So Jesus must go through Samaria. I think this is a statement of God's divine intentionality, and it gives us a window into the ways of God, into the ways of God. He is not exclusive. He has a heart for the nations, and uh, what a joy to see and to hear. You have people in the Czech Republic. You have people in Canada. Uh, There are probably others that are at different places. I know you have missionaries in Africa and Uh, But this church has such a heart for the world, and this is where it really begins and springs from, is right here. And so Jesus goes, and he sits down because it is high noon in Jewish reckoning. A day started at 6 a.m., so the sixth hour means it's noon. Okay, sunup was about 6, so that's why they they, uh, did it that way, I suppose. But uh, this is high noon, okay? Now, that, that would be the time, uh, you know, a traveler would sit down and he would uh, refresh himself, try to find a shade tree, get some water, and Jesus just so happened upon this place and sat down and was waiting. And uh, it would not be a time when a woman from that city would be out seeking water. You would do that in the cool of the day. But perhaps there is a reason why she's doing it at such a time. But you just get this sense by the time you come to verse 6 that something really interesting is going to happen. This storyteller wants us to know it's all primed up. It's, it's ready. Something of magnificent divine proportions is going to be unleashed in this moment. 
could this be the Savior of the world? The woman asks in verse, or could this be the Christ is actually what she says down in verse 29. Come and see a man that told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And then you'll notice at the end of the next section, verse uh, 42, the, the Samaritans say to her, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. We know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. You see where the author is, is leading us? He wants us to hear this woman's question. And it's not just a question that is spoken out of uh, curiosity, out of, uh, you know, kind of the uh, trivial pursuit or the jeopardy or some kind of a game where you just ask questions because you're interested in knowing. This is a question. You can see what's going on in her heart. It's a rhetorical question. She knows full well this is the Christ, but it waits. The writer waits to that point to put the exclamation upon it. And the people of Samaria, not just this woman, but they all unite in a chorus together saying, we now know this is indeed the Savior of the world. You see, so this this passage falls neatly into these two halves. And uh, I want to talk about it, what you see there in your outline, of asking the right questions and doing the right work. It's just that simple. Asking the right questions and doing the right work. If, If you are sitting here today you don't know Christ, or perhaps uh, you, you do, but your faith feels weak. Uh, that probably includes about all of us in the room at this point. Uh, your faith is weak, and you want to grow. You hunger to know more. You have to ask the right questions. And in this conversation, Jesus stirs the heart of this woman to the point that she asks the right questions. It leads her down this path. So here we go in verse 7. There came a woman from Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. It's such a simple question, but with that question, it's like the pin popping the the balloon. It breaks through all of the cultural uh, appropriateness of the day. I mean, here is Jesus. He's a man. Here is Jesus as a Jew. Here is Jesus as a uh, one who is religious and holy, and uh, he, he's on a journey. He's sitting for this drink of water. But here comes this woman. Why is she coming in the middle of the day? Likely, uh, we, we pick up hints throughout the rest of the story, but you know she had five husbands, and the one she's living with now isn't her husband. You know later that the disciples, uh, in verse 27, they marvel that Jesus is talking with a woman. But nobody says to her, uh, to, to him, uh, or the woman, what do you seek, or... Why are you talking with her? You know, they don't address the woman. They don't address Jesus. Perhaps they're uncomfortable with this whole situation. But she's probably there so as to avoid as many people from her town as she possibly can. And Jesus reaches out to her and says, give me a drink. The surprise of the woman in all this. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Notice Jesus' answer here, because it really gives us insight into the the nature of the gospel and the heart of God. This is what our God is like. This is the essence of the gospel. Jesus says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, notice what he begins with. 
if you knew the gift of God and if you knew who it is that is offering you this gift. Okay, there's two things there, right? There is his identity, who he is, and there is his work, what he gives. And she's saying, if you knew me and if you knew my gift, you wouldn't have even waited for me to ask you the question, give me a drink. You would have been asking for a drink, but it would have been a drink that is far greater than physical water. But she's oblivious to it. And uh, so we are, aren't we, before we come to Christ? We're oblivious to who he is. We're oblivious to the gift that he can bring and give to us. You probably have countless neighbors around you right now. They're oblivious to who Jesus is and oblivious to what he can give to them. That's what this woman is going to discover, and it's going to revolutionize her life. And so (laughs) she says to Jesus, Sir, do you have nothing to draw water with? It was the most obvious thing she could say. And the well is, is deep. She's just trying to put this together. It makes no sense to her. Uh, where do you get that living water? And then she turns her attention to uh, their, their common heritage from the past. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob? Of course, if you've read beyond this at this point, you know, uh, yeah, <laughs> Much, much greater. But are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well. He drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She uh, fought back to the, the, uh, the most wondrous thing she could. And, and here's the thing. Jacob was a great man. Jacob was the father of the people of God. God had given him 12 sons. So she's tracing her way back. It'd be similar to us saying, are you greater than George Washington? Except she had a direct bloodline traced all the way back to Jacob, even if it was mixed. She could trace her roots back there. Are you greater than the one God spoke to and said he was going to carry out that blessing from Abraham that was passed to Isaac? That's now. Are you greater than Jacob, really? And uh, besides, he gave us this well, and think about it, how many hundreds of years had the people of Samaria been going to draw water from that same well? Look at the way it kept producing, day after day after day, and that water gave them life. Without that water, you die. (laughs) You know, it's interesting if you know anything about ancient studies or you've traveled or whatever, all the ancient cities, where are they located? They're located near a water source. It's only in a modern era or even the Roman era where they had the great aqueducts, they could move water to different places, and then cities could spring up that aren't near a water source. Hoover Dam, I just read it the other day, it's like 150, Lake Mead, 158 feet lower than it is, and there's some uh, sunken uh, bomber that's, that's down in Lake Mead, and uh, the, the divers are loving it because they're only about uh, 100 feet or 200 feet down to get to it. And so, uh, whereas before they had to go, you know, 400, 500 feet down, it was much, much more difficult. But uh, Lake Mead is dropping, right? How do you think we sustain a population in the Southwest? Because of that water. And that's all this woman is thinking of. It's a perfectly good answer to Jesus when he comes to her. But Jesus says this in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. 
And so he says, I have a kind of water that is so far superior to this water. If you drink of the water that I will give you, you will never be thirsty again forever. Isn't that a wonderful way the writer puts that? As if you missed it, the first point. Because to never be thirsty again does mean forever. So you will never be thirsty forever. It's his way of punctuating it. And so this water is qualitatively superior to any physical water that you could take hold of. But uh, I, I love water. Some of you probably don't like water, but you can't last very long without water. You have to keep going back to that source. But Jesus is saying, if I give you this water, this spiritual water, you will never be thirsty Again, what could he be pointing to? What could he be saying? But notice the woman, she asks the right question. This so far has been primarily about the gift Jesus gives. We're going to look in just a moment at who he is. Remember his identity and the gift he gives. Here it's about this gift, and she says in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She's still doesn't quite get the analogy he's drawing, and maybe you don't either. There is a physical and spiritual comparison going on here. Jesus is using the physical water, give me a drink, to turn it around to offer this woman a spiritual water that will satisfy the depths of the longings that are in her soul. Do you know what I'm talking about? Every one of us has those longings, those desires. And uh, it is that that Jesus is beginning to stir. So he then goes into this second part here, and he tells her, well, go call your husband and have him come here. Now, I don't know if you're with me on this, but I believe Jesus knew uh, the answer here because he actually says it. So then you have to ask, well, is Jesus being cruel here? Why would he point out this woman's sin? Why would he point out my sin? Why would he point out your sin? Is it cruelty or is it something more? I want to argue it's something a whole lot more because he's not pointing it out to push her away. He's pointing it out to draw her in. And so he points it out to her, and, and this woman says, I have no husband, it, almost as if trying to escape it a bit, as we often do with our sin. I, you know, we try to downplay it. You know, she doesn't tell him that she's had five. So Jesus goes a step further and actually points that out to her. He says, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. What is he doing? <laughs> I think what he is doing here is he is reaching into her life and showing her that you have this thirst. And the way it has played out for you, you have been chasing it in relationships with men. First, you were married to one man. You weren't satisfied there. The marriage came to an end. We don't know how. Did he die? Perhaps. We don't know how. But for five husbands in the space of her lifetime, that's uh, pretty quick. And so uh, she has a second husband. She has a third, a fourth, a fifth. And now she is living with one. What leads somebody to do that? Perhaps it's loneliness. Perhaps it's the desire for companionship. Perhaps it's a feeling of uh, being insecure. Perhaps uh, it's a feeling of uh, being out of place or uncared for or unloved in a culture that uh, requires that a woman be under the protection of a household. 
she no doubt had many fears in her life as, as you and I do too. And uh, what, what is it for you? What is it that uh, I was having a conversation just recently? I think so often in relationships, the reason we talk past one another, the reason we feel hurt is because we're really not at rest in the Lord as much as we're trying to find satisfaction in that relationship, and that relationship is disappointing us. Think about my relationship with my own children. We have a daughter that is, uh, we adopted her later in life, and she has struggled, and uh, she is not following the Lord, and we pray for her. We saw her just recently, and uh, it's, it's painful. It's very painful to think about. And yet, I have to ask myself, am I trying to find my satisfaction in her and seeing her follow the Lord, or am I really finding my satisfaction in the Lord? It would clear up a lot of our problems if we really came to rest in God. Uh, and you think about the different ways people try to find this satisfaction. Uh, they, usually it's the, the big ones, you know. It's uh, sex, it's power, it's you, you know what they are, right? And so a guy like uh, Wilt Chamberlain, he bragged that he had had sex with over a 1,000 women. Did he die satisfied? Did that? Wh- why was it 1,000? Why was it not one? Why did he go to two, three, four, five? Up to a thousand? That reveals something rather disturbing about the human soul, doesn't it? Or a, a guy, I think it was Vanderbilt, uh, the, I think he was an oil railroad tycoon of uh, the 18, late 1800s and uh, made millions and millions of dollars, university named after him and so forth. And uh, they asked him, uh, well, how much money is enough? You remember what he said? Just a little bit more. And uh, even after all those thousands and millions, there's this dissatisfaction that's deep in his soul. And you know what? That dissatisfaction is there in the hearts of people. It may not come out today, but it eventually finds its way out. And I want us to think about that not only for ourselves, but for those that are around us. And so Jesus draws her out. He doesn't do this because he wants to hurt her. He does this because he wants to heal her. And he draws it out. You are right in saying this. And almost as if, uh, if on cue, uh, the woman says, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. That seems the obvious thing to say, doesn't it? Uh, if you know that about me, you must be a prophet. Uh, the same thing happens in John chapter 1 with uh, Nathaniel and Philip. And uh, Jesus says, I always get it wrong, I think it was Nathaniel, I saw you under the tree, and uh, suddenly he believes this is the Messiah. Uh, But, sir, I perceive you are a prophet, but she doesn't quite know which prophet he is or uh, exactly what that means. And she says to him, our fathers worshipped in this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. She responds perhaps the only way she knows how. She thinks in religious terms, and that's good, but uh, she doesn't understand the one true faith. Uh, All religions are about places and duties and responsibilities. Only Christianity is about God and what he has done for us. And so she takes it in the direction of religious response. Well, which is it? I want to know. 
believe she's asking this question or making this statement with a sincere heart. So it's an understandable response. It's the only form of religion she knows. But Jesus, without missing a beat, he says to her, notice what he says here in the text. Woman, verse 21, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. That's interesting to say, isn't it? I mean, the Jewish people believe the same thing. It was in Jerusalem at the Temple Mount. That's where true worship takes place. But Jesus is going to say something rather shocking. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus responds to her with a a cataclysmic statement. It's like an earthquake has just gone off, and it's like 11, 12 on the Richter scale. It's this powerful burst into his, her world, and he's saying to her, the place doesn't matter. The form doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is me. Isn't that amazing? This, you know, people say, well, all religions are the same. Like, really? <laughs> when Jesus is standing there saying, the only thing that matters is me, Let me show you how we get there, okay? He says to her, the place doesn't matter. But he says to her in verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here. What does that mean? Precisely what it's saying. Everything from the past has now been altered. And it has to do with his coming. The hour is now here, he says. When true worshipers, they worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people. Now, the rationale that lies behind this is in the next verse. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. If God is spirit, that is the way we worship to him through our spirit, and we worship him in truth. We can't alter that he is spirit. We can't alter who he is or his ways. We have to worship him in truth. This book, John, is just full of these wonderful statements about both spirit and truth. You'll have to really work it out. But uh, essentially, if you think about the spirit portion, just prior to this in chapter 3, Jesus has talked to Nicodemus about the way the spirit must come into the human heart and change the human heart. And all this goes back to the Old Testament prophets who looked forward to a time when Messiah would come and he would take their heart of stone and he would give them a heart of flesh, a heart that could respond to God as God is, a heart could that respond to him in truth. You think of the word truth here, Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except by me. So we worship in spirit and truth. The time is now. Jesus has come. This is the way true worship happens. And uh, this is what God is seeking. Isn't that beautiful? It's not about us seeking God. It's about God seeking us. And that is the very thing this woman is experiencing. 
Jesus says to her, give me something to drink. If you knew who it was who says to you, give you something to drink, you'd have asked him and he would have given you eternal life, you see. I'm seeking you. And that's what God does with each one of us. He seeks us. He is a seeking God who loves us, who cares, who brings this message of good news to us, and it is there for us to respond, and respond is what she does. How does she respond? We see it later. I love this, (laughs) this picture, this mental picture. She leaves her water jar behind. Isn't that awesome? It's, it's the writer just, it's, it's one of these phrases you could read right by it. But what is it saying? The thing for which she came, the thing, the thing her whole day was about, going there at that point to get physical water, she's forgotten all about it. She doesn't even care about it anymore because something so much greater is on offer to her. The living water. She runs back to Samaria. She grabs the people of uh, Samaria and she says in verse 29, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? It's the climax of this point. You sense, don't you? Can't you feel it with her, this, this passion deep in her soul? That she, she understands that chasing after men, trying to find her satisfaction through these relationships, it's a dead-end street. But now the one who has been promised from ages and ages ago who can satisfy the deepest longings in the heart, he's here, it's now, and he's just offered himself and eternal life to me. Some of you are probably old enough to remember this. I don't know if, they, if you sing it here at all, but I couldn't help but think of a hymn that we sang when I was growing up. And uh, it was written at the last part of the uh, 19th century, but the words, uh, they couldn't be more true today than, than they were then. And they say, All my life long I had panted for a drink from some clear spring that I hoped would quench the burning of the thirst I felt within. Feeding on the husks around me till my strength was almost gone, longed my soul for something better, only still to hunger on. Poor I was and sought for riches, something that would satisfy But the dust I gathered round me only mocked my soul's sad cry. You know what it says then? Hallelujah, I have found it. Whom my soul so long has craved, Jesus satisfies my longings. Through his blood, I now I'm saved. Hallelujah, I've found it. Have you gone through your whole life looking and searching and wanting something more? Maybe even as a believer, you, you find yourself drifting and you're attracted by things that are going around you and then the disappointments come along, maybe a recent Supreme Court decision or something on that order, and uh, you feel battered around and, and then you, you wonder, well, where is justice, where is righteousness in this world? And it's right here. Hallelujah, I have found him whom my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies my longings. Through his blood, I now am saved. It is a good word. It is a word we must come back to 
time and time again throughout our lives. And if you don't know Christ, you don't know this satisfaction that he can bring to your soul, I invite you today, as Jesus invited this woman, do you know him? Do you know what he can give? Because what he can give will not only satisfy you now, but for an eternity. And I call on you to come. Come to him today. Why wait? Why waste your years? Why pursue things that are never really going to satisfy you? Perhaps you're a young person here today and you're going through that stage of trying to figure out, is, is my parents' faith really my faith? Or you're going to go off to university uh, soon and maybe you're there now and maybe you're struggling with that question. Come back to John 4. Come back to Jesus because he is the only one that is going to satisfy the longings of your soul. God has placed those longings within you They are placed there so you will seek him and find him and be satisfied in him for an eternity. That's why those desires are there. Asking the right questions. Could this be the Christ? But it's also doing the right work. And I'm going to be short here because our time is fleeting, but uh, it's so important to see how this story continues. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Of course, they're, they're rather confused about this. But Jesus, again, speaking in a metaphor, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. He clarifies this for them in verse 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, I don't believe Jesus said this in some kind of strict, morbid sense. I think he said this with delight and with joy because of the image he uses that that follows up. This is Jesus' work, but notice the way the text turns here. It's not only Jesus' work. He says to them in verse 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. But then he turns and he says, Do not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. See the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering food, uh, fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Okay, do you get what's going on here? He turns it away from himself. My food is to do the will of the one who has sent me. But guess what? Your work is to do the same thing. So are we, are we doing the right work in our lives? What are we pursuing with our lives? Are we pursuing the, the harvest of the God of heaven, this great harvest he is reaping in DeKalb and around the world? Are our eyes open to it? It's, uh, the disciples are, are surely there with Jesus, and uh, they're, they're going along with him. They're in his company. They're they're, uh, they're giving him food along the way. They're strengthening him. They're participating with him. And yet uh, he can say to them, wake up. Wake up. And maybe we come to church week after week. And uh, we're there with Jesus. We're there with the people of God. And we're enjoying the, the benefits of the fellowship with the people of God. Uh, but Jesus arouses them as if they are sleeping people. And he says, wake up. 
Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. Their eyes are down. They're, they're myopic. They're looking in, perhaps. And he says, raise them up. Look out. See what is out there. See the fields. They, they're white for harvest. Uh, perhaps, you know, Jesus is actually looking around at some fields, and maybe they are not white for harvest. I rather think here that uh, the, the fields might have just been sown. And uh, so he then talks later about the reaper overtaking the sower so that both of them can rejoice together. In other words, something of divine proportion is occurring now, and it's going to unfold. It's as if Jesus is even anticipating the Samaritans walking out of the city, rejoining him along with the Samaritan woman, and the two days with them, and then they're saying to the Samaritan woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Perhaps the Samaritan woman is even the example of one that has her eyes open. As she runs back to Samaria, she leaves her jar, she runs back, and she says, "Uh, come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. And then she prompts it with a question, could this be the Christ? Now this would normally, you would, think, be the kind of woman that would be ignored in a town like Samaria. We don't know why, but they they travel out, and perhaps that is a further indication of God's divine work taking place here in the human heart, the Spirit of God at work. So often that's the case, I find. Um, I, I can tend to go around thinking, well, nobody really wants to respond to the gospel, and I've already got that conclusion in my mind before I even share the message of Christ before I even raise a question or respond to somebody's question, I think people probably don't want to believe. I know the people at church, they believe, and I enjoy my time with them and my company with them. Look, the fields are white for harvest. You may not expect it. Maybe the seed has just been sown, and you're not expecting this harvest to be there, but never live your days from the standpoint of it probably won't happen because you know what? With God... It does happen, and it happens in the most surprising, alarming ways possible. I was in uh, Russia just uh, early June. Sometimes forget where I was when, but I was in Russia in early June, and uh, we were with uh, some of our key graduates from the programs of training. So these are pastors. Uh, We train pastors. I forgot to mention that in the morning if you don't know me. Uh, But in training Pastors over a period of four years, these, have, these men have risen out of that group. They're uh, very strong in the training, and they're multiplying the training, and we're working with them at a next level. Uh, the difficulty is they are all from one region, and uh, a new regional pastor has risen up. It was kind of like you know, a pharaoh that did not know Joseph. Well, they were, uh, this is a bishop that did not know LRI. And uh, this... Uh, gentleman uh, has, has been around us. We've invited him to things. He's always backed away uh, and, you know, just held us at arm's distance. But the pastors in his region and the, this cream of the crop, they're like the key pastors there. And uh, they told us that this bishop wanted to come and talk with us. So we took it that he wanted to talk not just with LRI but with these key pastors. And uh, one of the things that, that we long to see is God's transformation happen in people's lives through the power of the Word. And we have seen that in spades in these pastors that we're training. It's just remarkable. 
So this pastor is coming, and we knew he wasn't too happy, and part of that's understandable because the pastors that are the cream of the crop in his region are giving their time, efforts, energy to this work they've been doing with us for a long, long time. And uh, this pastor's got a certain agenda he's wanting to accomplish, and uh, probably very good things, don't know all of those things, so I, I empathize with him to that degree. But, but the way he came in, was, it was about, um, he, he was about the rudest person I've met. And, uh, you know, there was no holding back, no, but th- this can tend to be a trait in some people, and he just comes right out with both barrels firing. And he starts telling us what we're doing wrong. He, he you know, he berates us. Uh, he, he berates each of the men in the room. It's like a, an older uh, Soviet-style general, that, uh, his, the way that he leads. And, and I'm just sitting there praying and, you know, trusting God that he's going to do something. Well, then, one by one, the men around the table, they started responding back. It was better for us to keep quiet at that point and just let them respond because God has put it in their hearts to do this. We're not forcing anyone, and if, if God is leading them to something else, terrific, you know. So, um, anyway, this, this fellow was quite, quite rude to us, but, um, uh, you know, he left, and we, we gave him a hug, and we, you know, said we'd pray for him, and uh, we tried to find some, some solutions, and it, it was a pretty good conversation, but you could tell there was still this. We invited him to travel with us to other parts of Russia where these men are helping us with the training, and uh, so it kind of left a little bit awkward, and then I flew back to the States. Well, the founder of our ministry, some, uh, some of you know Bill Mills, and Bill is acting regional director for Russia and the, uh, the, uh, the Stan countries, Central Asia. So uh, Bill then joins with another co-worker and these men. They join together in uh, another part of Russia. Actually, the, uh, the key pastor there is, uh, is the boss of this other regional pastor I just mentioned, right? And so this regional pastor, he calls up his boss. He says, yeah, I don't get it. What, what's, what are you, why are you so interested in this? And the man said, the, said to him, I want to be where God is working. Just like that. I want to be where God is working. And then uh, he called another pastor who's a, kind of a senior pastor of another region. And uh, this pastor said to him, I just feel like through this ministry I'm falling in love with God and his word all over again. Isn't that powerful? Wow, who would do that but God alone? What does that but God alone? What, what can stir the heart? What can give you that, that feeling like, I'm just falling in love all over again? What can give you that feeling like, I want to be where God is at work? Nothing but this revelation that comes to you and open your eyes that Jesus truly is the Savior of the world. And with that, I close. Let's pray. Father, uh, you, it's just really incredible to us to think that you looked beyond our sin, our sinfulness, uh, the place we were born, the weaknesses we have, and um, that you sought us out. We praise you for that. We thank you for that. Father, I want to pray that uh, your spirit would work in the hearts of people this moment now because when you spoke these words and you said now a time has come the father is seeking those who will worship in spirit and in truth when you spoke that word 
Uh, it's been a long time ago now, but something cataclysmic happened when you came to reveal yourself as the Savior of the world, and you have given us opportunity to respond today. I pray, Lord, you'd work in our hearts. Give us a softness for it. Remove the heart of stone. Give us hearts of flesh that respond to you, to your mercy, your grace, that understand that that which we've been pursuing perhaps for a lifetime has never given us the satisfaction we have so longed for, but you will do it. Father, I thank you for this church that loves you and wants to serve your purposes. I pray, Father, that you would work within us. Give us greater clarity. Give us stronger conviction through John chapter 4 and your revelation to this woman and this town. Uh, Give us a firmer conviction and a resolve to follow you and to serve your purposes. Help our eyes to be open even today to others around us here that may be seeking Christ that are feeling the pangs of dissatisfaction and want him. Thank you for the belief we see here and the belief you stir in our hearts. We praise you for it in Jesus' name.